Very little with Barbara. What kind of contact? I mean, did you have with Will, or did you just? Well, he was a picture. One, of, I think, the first picture editor of Life. One of the first for a while, and he was also, uh, I don't know, had something to do with publicizing Leica. I think it was. So I ran in home, both of the journalism and technical thing and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Bernard and Cola taught at that some treetops. Bernard and Cola Hyden, a musician, a professor at uh, at University of Indiana and student of Schoenberg in Germany. They came to they Bernard's the uh, brother of this Margaret Stern that I talked to you about in Detroit, not teaches history at Wayne University who was married to a great engineer at Chrysler. And then Bernard came here, and also she was the one I told you was representing Black Star for a while in Detroit. Okay, yeah. Got it? It sounds complicated. It's well, really, I'll have to read it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> to it's really get it so anyway, uh, Barbara got interested in the dance photography and uh, uh, you know did a hell of a good job of stopping it in a way that nobody else did. See, the where and her things were very different from, say, Maury Seymour's kind of dance ballet thing. Is there, Maury Seymour and a lot of New York photographers were very stultifyingly old-fashioned. They were what the ballet people wanted, you know, impossible positions and highly retouched. And Barbara Morgan's were not. They had to do with light, motion, stopping motion, you know, ephemeral of uh, accidents and drapery and that kind of thing, but also showed the terrific positioning that a, you know, a godlike dancer like Graham was capable of doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now here's old, old Pepper number 30. Yeah, right. So, you know, this is the classic example of Edward lying to everybody. In what respect? Well, he said it had nothing to do with sex. Oh, yeah. All these pictures had nothing to do with sex. And he was astounded when people talked about sex. Well... Well, and what he'd like to talk to you, see, it's always a diversion that the picture were taken in a funnel and, you know, had an eight-hour exposure or and something. And Brett ate the pepper later. And Brett ate the paper, pepper later and the <laughs> trucks going by, you know, would make the thing tremble. It was fun to interview Brett and he'd say, oh, yeah, I ate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the important thing about those pictures, if they are highly sexual, they are peppers, they have many levels of meaning, and... You know, the fact that the photographer, it's quite possible that Edward really didn't think that he was photographing something sexual. I but, doubt it. But, I it, doubt is, it, but it is possible. It's, it's possible, yeah. But it doesn't matter, in a sense, what, what you're saying, what he said. It doesn't matter what Weston said. And all these day books are interesting, mainly because of what he's hiding. See, and that's why I, I, you know, I'm disappointed that Nancy chopped some out and Edward chopped some out. What was chopped out, you see, is exactly the important things. Mm. See, those are the things. Faces that, on a cutting room floor. Right. Well, not that so much, but the fact, no, it's the unconscious, you see. Faces on the cutting room floor, that's a different kind oh, of thing. Oh, yeah, no, I just was yeah. using it. Here's another yeah. one. Well, it's a part of a series, and they are gorgeous. And Edward is doing, in a great sense, the same thing that Man Ray, you know, was doing with the kind of line outline of the object which is very exciting. There are several versions of this, and they are great group pictures. Yeah, this leg always looks like a bud to me here. Like, it's just, but like this is a single... It's very flower-like, <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. Now, I couldn't resist putting this in after that. <laughs> this being the, the hated Mortensen. Well, it's, it's all right, see, but it's dead. Weston's picture is alive. Weston's picture, you know, has something to do with the scene that was contemporary. It had to do with breaking away from cliched forms. This is going back to cliched forms, you see. All, every element in it relates back to about 1890, not of good painting, but of the worst kind of painting. You know, there's the Japanese influence there, including the Japanese umbrella. And the form is pure, you know, third generation Whistlerian Japanese derived, um, you know, derived from Japanese woodcuts kind of scene. And I hate it. Well, I'll take it off the screen. <laughs> no, you don't have to. Just, no, well, that's... This is an early uh, Adams. Yeah, and very, you know, very powerful. And in this case, the, it's 
better than most of Anza's pictures because, again, there is great repetition. You see what he would normally leave as a blank space up there in the sky, which much of the form that's taking place, the agitation of the black and white, is repeated in the uh, rocks. And so you have to really look at this picture, you know, and think about it, see it, and it's a slow thing. See, this yeah, is this one is of his less pictorial images. Less typical. And I'm sure not bought by many people. And won't be, well, you know. at this point, anything probably. Well, that's right, but it, it wasn't bought for a long time now. You're right, everything gets bought because the name, not the picture. Yeah. It's interesting. It's one of my very favorite animals, yeah. pictures. I, I myself tend to love creatures, and I think all those things you say, and then I, I see the little creatures in it, and I think it's, I just always love this picture. See, this could be a system. Virtually, yes. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more, it's closer to the system than it is to say Weston. Yeah, it's not as typical. It's I should not. I could really have Moonrise over Hernandez here. Yeah, that would be much too more typical. Or the aspen trees. Or yeah, something like that. Yeah. That's more. This the, is uh, already an aberrant Anselm's, and it, again, it's interesting. I'm sure that if I went through all of Anselm's pictures with the idea of showing them, you know, in a good light, there'd be different pictures that have been published. I said this, you know, years ago. Adams has. He makes bad choices. Well, and we really have Nancy Newhall functioning as a right. very much a filter for both Weston and right. Adams through through time. Now, this is actually the only thing I have. Well, one of the only things I have in color, Elliot Porter. Yeah. Probably. Well, Elliot has no sense of color whatsoever. I mean, he doesn't understand the problem of making colored photographs as colored photographs. He has a great technical facility. If you're interested in nature and the reproduction of nature, he's the paramount photographer. But the pictures I like of Elliot Porter are the Lost Canyon things, where in spite of Elliot, there is a very strong structural color schemes and terrifically powerful oppositions and runs of colors on a structural basis rather than as all of his books. And they all look the same after a while to me. I can't tell whether they were taken in, you know, Maine or where. Uh, I liked his, his bird pictures, for instance, which were just terrific, where he had very little control over what he was seeing. Some of them were setups, in fact, where they he was, all, I think most of them were. Where he was 100 yards away yeah. with a pair of binoculars. Yeah, so they, they're quite terrific to me. But uh, he, he is not the color photographer to me, but, you know, he is the color photographer. He is a man that uses color to make things look more real. He goes, just, we, we just go 180 degrees in our photographs. And, of course, he was the color photographer that, that Stieglitz picked up at the end of uh, yeah, his life. right. Which is an interesting phenomenon, I think. Right. It's, uh, you know, and so is Ansel. Did you see any of the Porter stuff at, at Stieglitz Gallery? No. I don't remember what year that was, but I didn't see it. Probably just before the war, maybe even during. Yeah, I think it was probably during. Do you have any insight into Stieglitz's interest in, in Porter's work? I mean, it's mostly the bird pictures, I guess, there. Well, I think Stieglitz, in the end, really didn't want any competition. <laughs> How do you mean? Well... And what kind of competition well, didn't he want? Well, I think Stieglitz and Porter were very much in part of Stieglitz's tradition. Uh, earlier, you know, Storm at Lake George, for instance, and that, all those pictures. And really, when he was trying to, it was halfway between, you know, nature photographs and symbolic port portraits of nature, mm. you know, that expressed his own internal things. I, I spent four hours talking about Stieglitz. Um, yeah, I'm not asking for your statements. Uh, where I, he probably should have given the show the logical photographer was Weston. But uh, I don't think he could hack it by that time. He'd become such a guru. He really wasn't, uh, you know, dealing with issues. Couldn't unbend enough to That's admit right. of Weston? Yeah. Or? I think Weston, you know, was very annoyed with Stieglitz, and rightly so. Yeah. Stieglitz at the end, you know, he used to sit back and go there and have the cloak there. And, I mean, he was sort of godlike issuing. He got quite paranoid, too, didn't he, near the end of his life during about the war? And he thought the Germans were going to win because they were so much more efficient and was really. Uh, well, that's getting, what he'd been taught in yeah, his childhood. Getting kind of weird about the whole thing. 
from what I hear. I like my lectures on Stieglitz. See, they are totally different than the Well, this is Sheeler, you see, earlier in the 20s, and so I told you that three great photographers, the three known photographers in America in the 20s were Steichen, Stieglitz, and Sheeler. And Sheeler has just totally disappeared as a photographer. You know, he'll be revived, no doubt, because you can publish a book and sell it. I guess he partly suppressed his own career as a photographer after sure, a point. because he didn't want to acknowledge the role of photography played in his paintings. I mean, the paintings were worth, you know, umpteen thousands of dollars. The photographs were just... Zilch. Zilch. And at this last auction, I guess, that uh, I saw the catalog, uh, there was one photograph of a barn by Sheeler that was purporting to bring eight to ten thousand dollars. It was perfectly ridiculous. Again, it was probably, you know, Hendrix. Well, I don't know. I would uh, strike that. It wasn't Hendrix. Um, somebody had this thing, and they're just capitalizing on the fact that an institution with a lot of money might yeah. want to put that in their Sheeler collection. In itself, it's a dumb you know, yeah. picture. Meaningless. Well, I love Wynn Bullock. See, Wynn, to me, had a great sense of magic, mystery, you know, uh, touch of surrealism, totally confused in his mind, uh, his intellectual mind. And but you like his pictures. I love Wynn and his pictures. And <laughs> I even like what he says, but he's like Fred Summers. I mean, they are both full of hot air. He came I mean, to Chicago, didn't he? Didn't about. Bullock come to Chicago also to teach oh, at one point? the Institute of Design for... While you were not teaching there, but while... No, no, while I was teaching there, right. I had to throw, uh, shut up Clarence John Laughlin because he kept telling Wynn Bullock, who was showing his pictures and trying to explain just what we're doing here, every picture Clarence Laughlin kept telling Bullock what was in his pictures. And Jim Newberry had brought Clarence John there, and so I told him to shut up. And Jim was quite mad at me for a while. I think I may have actually thrown him out. Thrown Laughlin out? Yeah. This would have been during the time Newberry was a student? Obnoxious. Yeah. Newberry must have been really torn because those are the two gurus of Jim Newberry. That's true. And well, uh, I think Jim was my assistant at that point, but he was interfering. I wouldn't, didn't mind, in fact, at one point we had uh, Laughlin talk on his own pictures, you know, talking about the sentient third eye. Uh, that's all right. I've always been in you know, favor of, we have, uh, you know, summers there. But, you see, I differentiate very much between people who know what they're talking about, like when talking about space-time is an exercise in futility, as is uh, Fred Summer talking about music. You know, he does a lot of tricks, you know, I would call them cheap tricks with dumb students and suckers of, you know, people, uh, where, you know, he says, uh, you know, he does these things on the scores and then tells the musician when they ask him, you know, what to play, he says, well, that's your job. Well, he does all kinds of variants of that. It's a, it's a happening, mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. I mean, Fred is marvelous, but to listen to Fred talk about science or music, that's absolute garbage, absolute garbage. Mm. But all these young kids, you see, don't know anything about science or music. They think it's wonderful. He's wonderful. You know, he tries to get them involved all the time. So, Bullock. And Fred, incidentally, has made some marvelous pictures. He made very few pictures, but they are among some of the most memorable you know, of... Mm -hmm. uh, I have one of his in here uh, shortly, I think. Well, now this you've got uh, hanging upstairs. Yeah, yeah, and Aaron is, you know, one of my good friends, and I just think he's one of the great photographers who will really survive. But Aaron is very subtle. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe we've said a lot of things already that would pertain to this anyway. Well, but beyond that, you see, I think uh, Aaron is one of the few conscious photographers about form. I mean, really conscious, super conscious. And uh, there is no kitsch in Cisco. So you can, if you compare a photographer, which you really can't, but just for the purposes of making some things clear, <coughs> I would put Aaron Cisco at one end of a spectrum and Andre Cortez at the other end in terms of their sensibilities. 
Aram was super sensitive to the movements that were taking place in art, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Cortez, you know, was seeing everything through the filter of a very dilute, long distant cubism and uh, uh, Hungarian pictorialism. I remember in your class at Columbia you said that Aaron would deny this, but you feel that a lot of Aaron's pictures are about the circus that goes on in his head. Oh yeah. I wrote an article, which is, is that on your bibliography in Modern Yeah, I have, I have that article. Yeah. Well, that's a good article. When that one's big show here of Aaron's a couple of years ago, no. was, isn't that when it was written? No, no, it had nothing to do with that. They just wanted to publish a portfolio hmm. of Aaron's pictures and asked me to write it. That's a Gloucester picture, isn't it? Martha's Vineyards. Martha's Vineyard, yeah, I guess. Now this is, uh, as it happens, is the Brett Weston that yeah. we were sort of making reference to right. the other day right. in relation to the uh, black. This isn't the one with the, just completely the black crack window, but this is one of the yeah, well, things like that. that's the kind of thing I was doing. Uh, Brett was doing a very large camera and makes a difference. But my things, I think, <clears throat> I was very consciously trying to make the forms of the broken glass. You know, that's what intrigued me. Yeah. What do you think about Brett in relation to Edward? I mean, he's always partly suffered under the, you yeah, know, onus. very different. I mean, Edward has a breadth that Brett does not have. Brett finally got very decorative, I would say. Uh, he, he doesn't have the humanity that uh, uh, Edward had, for better or for worse. Uh, I think his pictures are rather cold uh, compared to Edward. Uh, some of them are very beautiful, you know, I have one. And uh, uh, I think he's a great example of Oedipal conflict. Uh, yeah. Even to the choice of technique, you see, which is always oriented psychologically, really. I mean, he had to use an 11 by 14 because his father used an 8 by 10. Yeah, at least up until recently. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, Everything he did. Well, why didn't he go to 1620? Anyway, uh, yeah. you know, those are questions that have to be brought up. Yeah. Okay, this is William. Yeah, Bill Hartman, who I've always admired and who in no Wait, who, way, who did you say? William Hartman. Garnett. 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 Hartman is an American landscape painter. Yeah. Uh, this is Garnett, who uh, this is part of a series that appeared in Life and. Uh, he combines several interests. He loves flying in, uh, in small airplanes, and he's interested in the landscape. See, this is a different, a very different kind of a guy than uh, Summers. Mm -hmm. Anything he'd say, I'd believe. Garnett. Yeah. And uh, he ranges from, you know, very realistic pictures of landscapes to these super abstract, you know, that could very easily be a photogram or light modulator or something. Or almost a nude, I think this or is often. Or a nude, yeah. I mean, like a leg, knee, you know, folded there. I think they're very exciting. I think there, you see, you have a photographer who's highly under, underexposed or underrated. Yeah. Marlboro Gary is trying to change that now. Well, I know. <laughs> That's why, you know, I give a whole series of ways of how to become famous, what yeah. you have to do to become famous. Now here's Fred. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting that Edward, you know, also did these dead things. And it's interesting to compare when they did them, you know, and the different meaning. And how Fred, you know, is exploiting the surrealist kind of shock value, whereas Edward's doing something totally different. So I don't want to get electrons. They're very different. Yeah. This is a little out of place here, but... Yeah, that's Lizette Modell, and, uh, you know, probably one out of 40 pictures that she ever made. There is the biggest overrated reputation in modern photography. Of course, again, she's devoted most of her energy, really, to teaching. Yeah, but that was after... I don't know, about... Well, she has a terrific reputation, and on, it's on the basis of the road at the most 20 to 30 photographs. But don't you feel too that a lot of uh, interest in her, I mean, I, I, she was known, I think, in smaller circles, and then with Diane Arbus, I mean, she really Right, she gloms on, she gloms on to the, you know, uh, Diane Arbus thing, 
and uh, that's great. I mean, I don't know her as a teacher. It gets glommed onto her. I was yeah. just going to say, I've I don't heard think her. she glommed on. I think Arbus affected her. I, I think it's because of Arbus that, and because she was Arbus's teacher that she really surfaced. And I'm well, I'm, she glad, did it. I'm glad that uh, Lizette, you know, has this great uh, reputation. I have heard her teach at the Art Institute, and I was horrified, horrified why what I heard. I mean, if you want to hear nonsense, that's another good place to hear it. But then that's my own prejudice. I am not a mystic. You know, I don't believe in minor whites, cheap psychology or mysticism or his own personal confusion, you know, which works up into a philosophy. I mean, I've worked too damn hard to get some clarity in my brain, but I'm not going to listen, you know, and take seriously this kind of mystical shit. Of course, the pictures are not mystical. No, no, they're not, but they were done quite a long time ago, and they're a typical exploitation of, of which has occurred in photography all over and over and over again, of, you know, photographing picturesque types, you know, the poor or the rich, you know, making them look either silly or dumb or something. I mean, they're very nasty pictures. Is Lizette a heavyset woman? Yes. Well, she seemed to be. Well, she's very slight. Well, she was no, very right? dressed. Oh, well, I don't know then. She's very short and thin, kind of, kind of. <laughs> but she's not frail, but wary. The, the guru attitude. Yeah, I'll leave it. Pass on. Speaking of which, I like this one. Yeah, this is this is a. My minor made a lot of nice pictures, regardless oh, of whatever. Absolutely. I'm, that, I'm trying to distinguish between. People as photographers, you know, as role models, as teachers, as thinkers. I mean, Wynne Bullock was one of the great photographers. He was one of the dopey thinkers. You know, Fred Summers is, again, a very, fairly small number of pictures. They're absolutely marvelous. But what he says, I mean, Aaron used to make fun of them. Still does. Well, I mean, I know exactly, too, because I mean, I lived in his house for two summers for four days, and I would just sort of sit there and talk with Alex about certain things, and you really have to sort of sift through. Here's another minor. Yeah. Well, minor at his best. Uh, it's funny. I picked out two minor pictures uh, after this fiasco where I, he wanted to publish my lucidograms. And, Recently, or yeah. the last... Well, not the last time I was there, and I spent $60 for photostats at his request, and then Hoffman didn't want to publish them, for what reason, I don't know. Um, but I got two pictures, and those were the two pictures that he used front and back on his book, I guess. One was... Sort of a little moon floating on yeah, a wall. Yeah, moon floating, the other a, uh, some kind of rock formation or something. Was, uh, sort of ribbon-like forms. It was funny. Made me laugh. This is one of my favorites, just yeah. personally. Yeah, it's, 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 see, that's where uh, I think Miner was very good when he broke through all the stuff that he thought and actually went to the visual. And this is part of traditions of, of a lot of modern photography. You know, and it does push, push Weston, it does push Ansel Adams way. You know, the, this is a very exciting image to me. I mean, yeah. it's fresh. Yeah. And here's a student of Miner's at one point. Yeah, well, that's the unfortunate part of it. Uh, Miner, you know, was a cult figure, and you know, the idea of his students living there and working a little suspicious. Uh, I've always tried to keep a certain, there are two ways of relating. Some teachers try to, uh, for some reason, they need students at ad adulations, and so they keep very close to them. Mm -hmm. And I've always tried to keep a distance from students. Don't I don't want to get involved all the time with dumb young students, mm -hmm. uncultivated young students. I have to talk to grown-ups. You know, in order to be a good teacher of young students, I have to keep refreshing my batteries. And you don't do that by talking to young, unformed students. They don't know. There's no way they can know. They're young. What about Caponegro himself? Oh, I love Caponegro's pictures, and uh, I've had a Caponegro, you know, for years. Uh, some of the simpler things. I think the fact that he's a jazz musician 
basically, you know, is very important. In fact, it doesn't particularly come from photography. It has other sources of information. Do you have any uh, idea about him as a teacher? No. Well, he's done a number of workshops. Yeah, right? I know. But as I tell you, I, those workshops to me, the greatest value is exposing people to the photographer, not what you learn. Or not what you learn about picture making. Yeah, right. Jim, why did you select this for a Campanegro? I find it you know, interesting. Why don't we interview him some other time? Well, the reason I, I say that is that I feel that it's not really a Campanegro. It's oh, yes, it is. It absolutely is. Well, it's one he yeah. selected for his, yeah. one of his portfolios. Well, I, I mean, it I certainly relates to the minor white picture well, right before. I find it too related to minor. Well, I know, but he was very conscious of a certain kind of way of seeing that he liked that had to do with minor. Yeah, no, your point is well taken, though, but it's a... Here it is. Well, I know, but you can pick a lot of things of uh, Cabernegro that would rel relate to different things. I think that was fairly typical, Cabernegro. That's interesting. star-like things that occur. Yeah, it has so Both in ones. his work and in minor way, or, you know, more than once. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of his earlier pictures. Yeah. Well, this, to my way of thinking, you see, Arnold Newman is the portrait, it's a formal commercial portrait photographer. And I think Karsh, you know, is an old-fashioned photographer, portrait photographer. Seems to photograph sculpture more than yeah, well, people. Yeah, they're all dead, over-retouched, manipulated. This is very lively, and at his best, Arnold is a fantastic portrait photographer. At his worst, uh, he's pretty damn good. <laughs> At his worst, he still brings home the bacon. That's right. He brings home a picture in print. Well, this is Arian Penn, who, again, is a frustrated, was a frustrated painter turned into a photographer. And he arranges things beautifully, or art director, frustrated with photographers. And, mm -hmm. you know, Mary's one of the most beautiful women in America, Lisa Fonza Greaves, and just makes elegant. You see, this is the opposite of a snapshot. If you're making a spectrum again, this is the opposite of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very elegantly arranged, always. Right. I mean, he has impeccable taste. Have you seen any of the uh, newer things, the platinum prints of the uh, just cigarette butts? Or just the reproduction. It's degree. interesting what he's doing there. It's very clear, you see. He's trying to show you that it isn't the material that he's been working with all the time, that he can take anything and make a wonderful photo image of it. And that's the point of that, and that's the point, really, yeah. You know, all fashion photographers, they can take uh, Mared and make it look like gold. <laughs> okay, side two. Harry's marvelous because yeah, he does. This is Harry's marvelous. Harry kept exploring different aspects of motion in photography, time in photography, multiple exposures, slow exposures, you know. Did you say this tree is down the block? Yeah. Down by it's Lincoln, Lincoln Park? Park, yeah. And uh, it's too more contrasting than the original was. Uh, but Harry, you see, was a very obsessional photographer, and he would make a lot of them. He'd get an idea, you know, which grew out of his previous pictures, usually. Mm -hmm. And then he would work at it and work at it and work at it until he, you know, felt that he had worked it. But he keeps coming back to earlier ideas and doing them slightly differently. And, uh, He's a totally different kind of photographer from Aaron, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harry's a very elegant kind of dealing with certain aspects of line, for instance, and no other photographer in history has ever done it. This is a short trip through history by Arthur Siegel. Yeah, this is a, this is a dime tour. I have just a few other things here, just more recently. But again, as this demonstrates, it doesn't matter what batch of pictures you take. You can talk about the ideas involved in art, and particularly in photography. Well, here's a multiple exposure by... Yolsman. Jerry Yolsman, and uh, his Wonder. aim was quite successful there to you know, make it look like it was a single uh, photograph. Or almost, anyway. Well, it's, it looks funny, but uh, only to sophisticated people like you. you see. Most students wouldn't know the difference. And certainly most collectors wouldn't have the slightest idea that this was a multiple thing. Anyway, 
uh, Jerry too, you know, got mixed up in this whole uh, no Parker kind of uh, mystical Jungian William Parker William Parker yeah well do you think that Yulsman believed all that stuff that Parker wrote I mean is that what you're saying pretty much or uh... well he started doing his pictures started changing he started using what are printed in uh, you know archetypal symbols in Jungian mm -hmm. I'm familiar uh, with that. talk so uh, uh, yeah, sure, I think that he listened to a lot of it. And uh, a lot of Jerry's pictures, I think, got worse. They got corny, because the symbols were very transparent. Again, at his best, Jerry's, you know, one of the great uh, image makers, collages, montages, whatever you want to call them. Uh, montage, I suppose, collage, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then there's a lot of corn in Jerry, and when you know Jerry, you know, he makes cheap jokes, and he, he likes to be witty, and he is witty, but his, his sense of humor is pretty uh, childish. Mm -hmm. Was there a message for him that we should remember? Yeah. Ezra McLean called. Goodbye. I like Jerry, and I like his pictures, but again, uh, it varies it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. well, this is out of Steiner, I think. Yeah. Aren't you impressed with me knowing every one of these? No, I was expecting you to. One? Well, I'm impressed. I'm somewhat impressed. I'm apply to graduate school. Which one, east or west? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we talked a little bit when we were talking about subjective photography about Steiner. Off the tape, yeah. yeah. Uh, was that off the tape? Well, he was very important, you see, in uh, the revival uh, after the war of picking up, the, putting the Germans back into the main tradition of the experimental photography and also certain kind of non-journalistic documentation as well as journalistic documentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really, there's a whole group of European photographers I could have, uh, but aren't mm -hmm. in this short survey which he sort of has to see. Yeah, well, this is Robert Frey, you know, and this kind of device that he uses keeps reoccurring in his pictures. Yeah, this is a very... It's, you know, starts the a ball speech. Road. Yeah, and again, I talk a great deal about language and connection with Robert Frank. The word in the, the picture. Word and, well, the structure language, the semantics in language, how it functions how Robert Frank uses certain kinds of figures that we know from verbal speech. Metonymy and synecdoche, various kinds of, mm. of uh, things. You know, again, speaking of Robert Frank in that book, uh, Photography and Humanities, he has the best essay, I think, in there. And he talks about why he left making photographs and why film continues to intrigue him and challenge him. Mm. Well, again, be careful. What a photographer. Don't believe what Robert Frank says about Robert Frank. Why is that? Because they all lie. Or don't know. But it's in interesting to hear him. That's right. It's fascinating to hear all photographers. Most of them lie. Or don't know. If you ask Harry why he made his pictures, he'll tell you. It's not true. Well, see, Harry is the kind of person I, I don't think I would want to believe, but I might begin to listen to Robert Frank. I know, but you've listened to Summers, too. No, I don't. Okay. No, Why would you listen to Robert Frank? Because there seems to be a more concrete logic at play there than there is with maybe Harry or with Frank Yeah, Summer. but he's a greater manipulator of reality than, than any of them. Why would you listen to an Avenant who says that Jim Leaf was one of the most beautiful women he ever just one of the most uh, non-narcissistic women that he ever met. When June Leaf is one of the most narcissistic women that ever existed. How do you well, explain that? Well, I mean, Adonis is very bright. Well, it's a matter of interpretation, I guess. It isn't a matter of it. Everybody that knows June Leaf knows that she starts every sentence with I. That's narcissism. Yeah, that's very true. She just thinks in terms of her own head all the time. 
doesn't think abstractly. She just Are you said, saying Frank or Avedon? I'm talking about saying, Avedon now. The, the Avedon said that about Jim Leaf. Yeah. Uh, would you I'm, believe what Avedon said? Well... I think Avedon's manipulating reality in the same way that Robert Frank, who is extremely bright, he's also extremely manipulated. Some of what he says may be true. Well, but I, I unless think, you find out about what, you know, he had, the way he operates and has operated, don't true. believe what he says. Yes, but I, what, I'm, what I'm going by is just the way the, What you'd like words, to hear. <laughs> I would say I, I would tend to agree with what he's saying. I so guess I, I'm, I'm hearing he's things He's saying that something I, that you believe. Or that, hit home, that hits home with me that makes sense about the way I think about photography. Right. Well, that's why you have to check yourself, you see. That's why we're suggesting you get a scholastic opera, operating method that eliminates that, it tends to diminish it. See, scholars don't believe anything unless there's some other evidence. Is that correct in history? Well, you mean in practice is it correct or in theory oh, is it no, correct? In, in theory, theory it's what you're correct. taught. I mean, in, in practice, everybody writes their own prejudices, of course, in the end. But a good historians, you see, you get tremendous insights because they suppress a lot of the cliché thinking that they might have made themselves and get evidence and put it together in fresh ways. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of what uh, I recently heard John Tolan talk about writing a book on Hitler. Yeah. And how he got to know all these people who were around Hitler. Right. And how it was initially very repugnant to him, but he had a lot of respect for him after he, you know, and he, he tried to go in, as it were, without having a predetermined idea and see what they had to say, all of them, and put it all together, you know, rather than. Right. My friend Eugene Davidson has a new book on Hitler, on, on Nazi Germany that he spent, you know, five years writing, he's been in Germany, you know, living there and whatnot and uh, used to be head of the Yale Press. I mean, it's a different story than you get from other historians. Now, whether it's any truer... No, it's like photography. There's no truth. There's only... That's right. But you have to learn. You see, the moment... Well... Robert Frank goes into an audience of young kids and he seduces them immediately. He tells them how wonderful they are, you know, when he looks at his, their pictures, and uh, he's a marvelous showman. But well, this essay has nothing to do with marvelous pictures. This has to do with uh, sort of evolution of working with an area and how he evolved working with photography. And uh, I have an idea. Why don't we not argue about the quality right. of Robert Frank's right. essay? But it has nothing to what I'm trying to say. It has nothing to do with seduction and nothing to do with well you said that I, he was speaking to an audience i don't believe what you're saying well i think i mean robert frank has not changed at all when he's doing that. well what i'm trying to say just is that it's a very objective discussion it has nothing to do with subject with seduction and praising people it hasn't to do with what he's thinking about photography well i know but even your use of objective there i object to that use Robert Frank is in no way an objective observer. Robert Frank. There's nothing to do with his pictures scholar. either. There's nothing to do with his pictures per se about discussing his pictures. Oh, but it does. I know why Robert Frank quit. It's well, not the reasons he gives. Why did he quit? <laughs> Uh, Dan Arbus, it's like all the glorious stuff that Marvin Israel talks about. Dan Arbus, do you believe what he says? No. Do you believe what Doom Arbus talks about? Dan Arbus? No. There's a. I question Diane Arbus. The, uh, the, the rise to fame she has, I question. Well, I don't question that. I think she's one of the great photographers. Well, see, I question that. Well, it pays your money, takes your choice. <laughs> I guess the thing I'm questioning is, would she have rose to fame the way she has, hadn't she commits, committed suicide? Yes. And all but as quickly? She really had. She was already famous. Mm. She was She became infamous, famous. perhaps. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it was a shock. That was one of the shocks. And here, she finally made it. 
that's the big shock. She finally was internationally famous, so she commits suicide. The question is, why did she commit suicide? Don't want to go into that. Perfectly clear why she committed suicide, exactly when she committed suicide. In terms of the success, you mean? It's well, in terms of the whole, her whole life story. Anyway, okay. she made some remarkable pictures. She sure did, and that's all you consider when it comes to a great photographer. I mean, that is the question. What kind of pictures are there? I mean, that is the art question. The other things may have to do with uh, sociology, biography, biography, money. Uh, I mean, the collectors and galleries are bringing out all kinds of garbage, selling them for you know large sums, all of which are not great photographs, but objects to be collected. Objects to be collected. Do you do you um, think of Arbus in, in relation to Ouija? Pardon me. Do you think of her work in relation to Ouija's work somewhat? I mean, the I put uh, people. Uh, well, I in my lectures I sort of bring together Robert Frank and uh, Dion and earlier Ouija and uh, people like uh, uh, Gary later and then you know Papa George and that. It's a kind of a tradition which pokes off into different places. Because I was just looking at the flash element in this and the way the space is well, regulated yeah, by that. That's not the crucial thing at all. That's not the crucial thing. See, that's where you really do go awry. Mm -hmm. uh, just because there's a common technique, the thinking may be totally different. This is Bob Heineken and, uh, you know, assembling out of little pieces, these new figures, and they're kind of fun. He's very bionic and very, the wittiest of all photographers. You see, and this is the difference between Robert Duano, who's absolutely cornball, mm. and Heineken, who is very witty in terms of contemporary taste. Well, it seems to me that, that Duano is narratively funny, and, and Heineken is visually Yeah, but witty. There, there, there's, there's elements, you see, of anecdotal there's an anecdotal element in Duano, and there is a little bit in Heineken. Mm. But the, the, this is very witty, and uh, any child of eight can understand Duano's wit, but you have to really be smart, you know, 20th century background in order to appreciate Heineken. That's why he really isn't that popular. Mm. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, the audience for a Duano is, you know, 100 million, the audience for uh, Heineken would be lucky, you know, if ultimately some good paint gallery shows him. That really, I'm sure, is his ultimate goal, not a photographic gallery. He, Heineken will make it in his mind when he joins the mainstream of art, when he's recognized as being the mainstream. Do you feel that he's a little derivative of Rauschenberg sometimes in his use of... They're all working in the same vein. Irene did things that look exactly like Rauschenberg uh, before and about the time Rauschenberg was doing his things. I mean, they were rubbings. Mm. They even used the same images out of Life magazine. <laughs> See, that's interesting. It's just there for people yeah, to use. Yeah, right. Well, Gibson, fascinating guy. He's the one who, uh, you know, has added a whole other kind of narrative and sequencing that I'm sure interests Nathan uh, uh, very much and interests me visually and the sense of mystery he gets. And, uh, you know, it's peculiar again. You see, how would you use, don't answer, it's a rhetorical question, but how would you use his own system with Ralph Gibson? He'd go cuckoo. <laughs> Uh, anyway, there's a lot of mystery. I love the way he uses the edges of the picture. He really busts loose the edges again in a different way. And he's a terrific photographer. I wanted him to come teach, and, uh, but he you know, got so busy and so famous. And he's, you see, there again, typical lie, lying on the side of a photographer. He totally represses his early pictures now. He'd eliminate them all if he could when he was making documentary pictures. Yeah, and the fact that he studied with Dorothea Lang seems completely incomprehensible if you only see these pictures. That's right. Do you think he's been kind of repetitious? It seems like the, the, sure, the three he, books are almost interchangeable. And no, they're subtle. I mean, there's a little difference. 
I think they're very sophisticated books. They are not, you know, um, most photography students are not going to understand them because they just don't understand any of the background, you know, behind it in terms of art or literature, you know, the derivations of that. Mm. Just like Bartholomew, uh, Donald. Donald Bartholomew, I just love his photographic, you know, essays and collage. Uh, but students, uh, unsophisticated students, have a slight, have an idea in hell what he's trying to do. Well, I have just three more. Huh? Yeah, well, I like Leslie Crims very much, did bring him. And uh, Leslie, you know, gets an idea and he springs right out of the advertising illustration tradition and the Pushpin Studios and whatever his name is, Snyder. Glazer, Milton Glazer, and uh, it's very uh, anti the found photograph, except he makes use of certain genre type picture traditions in photography. This is typical murder uh, police, you know, murder picture. And so he takes and transforms one of those well-known traditions into art, and they upset a lot of people. They want to know why they're any good. Mm -hmm. Well. All I can say is that I don't know what art is. I don't know what, uh, you know, I can talk about art for maybe 10,000 hours, and I, at the end, the definition of art is always what an artist makes. And my working definition of, 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 of uh, art is Picasso's. When an artist spits, it's art. Some, <laughs> you know, transformer and hand worker of photographs, uh, Betty Hahn or something like that. Yeah, this is Betty Hahn. It's a picture. Well, I've never seen this picture. Again, standing for a whole group of work that's yeah. being done today. Yeah, well, I've never seen it, but I think it's, you know, kind of dumb. I mean, if she wants to draw and paint, let her draw and paint. Her problem is that she is, uh, the images are very bold boringly low class and only photographers would like them uh, you know and the idea of making the thing work by hem stitching and you know using colored things they're like all the kitschy things that used to hang in American houses in the 90s you know God bless our happy home it's on that level some of which are kind of nice yeah I think she's know. consciously working out of some of that stuff. yeah she works out of a you know sort of a primitive low-grade pop art tradition, which is fine if you like it. It just, it's not very little interest to me. Let's finish this up. Okay, I got one more here. Just could have ended with anything. Yeah, well, bit. that's Lou Baltz, and I think uh, I did a lot of things that are similar to what Lou Baltz is doing. Right, we referred to that one, Winona, Dora, and Wong. Yeah, well, it's the same kind of thing, and uh, he does a beautiful, magnificent job, I think. He's a total formalist, and what he's done is take one kind of subject matter and done this great performance of organizing the pictures so that they are very, but really it has very little to do, even though the title has to do with California structures, yeah. it has more to do with Mondrian than it has to do with California. Right. It's like saying that the Siskins picture we looked at is about a guide to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, or it's about rocks. Yeah. It's not true. Okay, and of course he's picked up by Castelli and becomes one of the yeah. first ones. Oh, one. you should see the portfolio Castelli is doing on him. When I was in New York three weeks ago, they were showing me some of the pictures. and It's another one of these. You're going to scratch your head when it comes out. The price of it's going to be something like $1,500. Well, at least it's not going to fade in Yeah, years. I mean, it's not going to be what the Metropolitan's going to be. got that yesterday, yeah. I mean, I, that's a really a rip-off. I don't mind about... Uh, balls. I mean, if they're 15 pictures or something for 100 bucks a piece and a nice portfolio, if you can get it, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But the, I object to the Metropolitan, which in other areas, if they, you know, somebody wanted to sell them a painting that they said was going to fall apart in a couple of years. Well, of course, a lot of modern painting is falling apart. It is, right. And you, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, 
Klaus Oldenburg. Dinner. Uh, Gotta put the roast in. Oh, right. uh, Klaus Oldenburg's, uh, you know, soft things are already turned color and are disintegrating. Mm -hmm. But that's related to the whole idea of modern artist performance. Yeah. Let's take a little break and then we got and put the roast in. We have a few. David yeah. put our roast. Part Six. three, November sixth, Sunday, nineteen seventy-seven, oral history. Continuing. Continuing. 4.45. Any extraneous noises? Dido walking around. <laughs> okay. Fire. You um, referred to a course that you remembered that you taught sometime on teaching. Yes. Somewhere I think there's some, some wires. Wire. Wire recordings? Wire recordings from that class. Uh... Yeah, I wanted to, I want, I, see, at the time, in the late 40s, I consciously discussed with Maholi, when Maholi was alive, that one of the things I wanted to do was to turn out teachers that could teach on the college level as a conscious thing. Not only photographers, mm -hmm. but that actually I thought that there was going to be this breakthrough, you know, with all the veterans coming through, that photography would be taught, and there was nobody to teach on that level. In fact, in Detroit, earlier in the 30s, I was thinking of, I had taught a lot of teachers at Wayne, yeah. including someone by the name, I think her name was Margaret Stein, I used to go over her house, her father was a brewer, I remember. She was a teacher, an older, much older woman than I was, and... Uh, I helped teach a number of teachers that taught in these various high schools in Detroit. And so I was conscious about the problem of teaching. And then, at that point in the late 40s, I actually did some courses, I don't think continually, you know, every once in a while, on how to teach photography, where I took up the philosophical problems of what I was, what I was actually doing, not what they were supposed to do, but the reasons for, you know, the problems, the reasons for... Uh, teaching technique in the way we did. The reasons one dealt with uh, things like semantics or other, uh, you know, the relationship between sociology and photography or psychology and photography, all those things. So would this have been why you were still at the Institute of Design that first time? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. Just like I introduced that uh, course on bookkeeping for photography. Mm. And that's in the catalog, too. And certainly nobody ever taught a course in bookkeeping for photographers since, I think. Did, did you teach it? No, no. I got a bookkeeper to teach it. Hmm. So um, this course had been offered once or twice in that yeah. three, three and a half I, years. It was dropped. I don't think uh, it was never, after then, you know, when I left, it was never taught. Hmm. It was, so it was really a sort of a discussion type of a situation. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, one question that I had that's a very... Uh, is it going there? Yeah. It's a kind of a... Uh, well, it's a general question and we've touched on parts of it, but um, you know, you've been associated with the various goings-on and people here in Chicago and in your teaching. And elsewhere. And elsewhere, and many of whom have achieved a lot of note, like Harry and Aaron, mm -hmm. in their own right. Mm -hmm. And you've described your personal feelings towards them, but I'm wondering if you have any sort of, well, bitterness is too strong a word, but if you have some feelings about uh, that, or do you feel that the teaching is really the monument in a sense, or or do you wish you had written more, or, you know, how do you... Yeah, I you wish kinda... that I'd written more, and uh, my only gripe... See, I have tremendous admiration for both Harry and uh, Aaron. Uh, but when Aaron, you know, came, he was a tremendous help to Harry, you know, running the things. And uh, but when Harry, Harry is always, uh, particularly when he went to Rhode Island, uh, sort of given the idea that this was a program he had evolved. And somewhere on the tape, I have Harry drunk, in a drunken mood, who says, you know, that's absolutely wrong, that I did it. Uh, Harry, you know, drunk is one thing, sober is another thing. 
And uh, I just have felt that it's a little, the history is a little distorted. I really made some real contributions in that period, the three years full-time and then part-time, very important because it did not change very much. Now Aaron added some things, Harry added some things, and I think they, you know, both deserve all the credits they have. But if you talk to students of Harry, I don't think he comes out as a great teacher. With Aaron, as I told you, I think he's much more of a teacher. But certainly I was a super good teacher. And Harry was the, the great role model, yes. I think you said. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I resent, you know, the, I don't resent it, but it seems, you know, at the beginning to just get history to start of the Nathan Lerner who, uh, you know, was teaching foundation course suddenly becomes a great historical figure in American photography when he never did any photographs, you know, or wasn't teaching, he was teaching in the foundation course. I mean, in the summertime, uh, he may have, you know, done some photograms or something with the students. It's, uh, he simply was not interested. He was a designer, remained a designer for the next... 30 years or something. This is all a new phenomenon. And that sort of irritates me. And what photographic work he did do was, by and large, not seen at the time anyway? No. I mean, some of it was even published, but it was very few because Moholy wrote some articles trying to proselyte, you know, for the school. And that's what used them as examples, you mean? Yeah, some of them. Mm -hmm. But just like Moholy's book, he used, you know, a full-page picture of mine. So what? <laughs> that didn't tell anything. Those multiple exposures, it's a full page. It, uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't very meaningful. I mean, to me, a photographer is a guy that does photography. And that he didn't do. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I really had a wonderful, uh, interesting life. Not necessarily enjoyable one. I mean, I went broke. You know, I got sick. Uh, it was very tough in those early 50 years. I'm delighted that I, you know, was able to, uh, you know, get divorced in a peaceful way and remarry and find a marvelous woman for me, have three, I think, wonderful kids, uh, pay for their up-to-now education, which suddenly seems like it's almost out of sight. I did not plan on, you know, getting cancer. Uh, but that's, you know, why you can't plan for everything. <laughs> I'm trying to do my best to cope. So, you know, when I get my chemotherapy, I'm dreadfully ill. And uh, I mean, this week, for instance, you know, it cost me a couple hundred dollars in terms of not going to, uh, to give some lectures. And uh, I, yesterday, I'm, you know, turned down a, my, my doctor pupil. It was 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, but the... You see, that's one of the things I've learned from the, my decision. When I wanted to teach, that was it. And when I showed you the book, you know, how it drops off each year from $32,000, in what was it, 1966, something? 62, 3, 4, somewhere in there. Yeah, well, it was always around there, but it, about 66 when I joined ID and got $9,000 for the year. It was all right when I was doing all this stuff, but then I get involved in teaching, a real commitment, you see, to the teaching, which is what, in a sense, Harry and Aaron don't make. See, they continue putting all their energies, their first energies, as far as possible, into their work. And I respect that. My, it's me that's stupid, you know, if you want to think of it. Mm -hmm. Very different, like Jerry Olsman, I noticed, you know, has about two years off out of three when he's doing his work. Well, if you're going to be a photographic artist, you know, capital A, it's better, you better put your energies into doing work and publicity and smearing everybody, you know, how wonderful you are, than to try and teach some dumb student who is immediately, when they go on, going to disown you. Because they can't stand the idea that they, well, you play the role of a father figure in many cases, for better or for worse, with a lot of students. So they disown you as fast as they can. It's like another adolescence. Right. Then there's the other thing, the thing I really am sad about was, you see, at the time I did all my color pictures, the predominant printing, color printing process was half-tone, which is very expensive because it involves making metal plates, cuts. 
Today, all of that is very possible because you're using offset lithography, which is a much cheaper kind of process. See, so that's why you're beginning to see, you know, so much advertising in color in the national magazines. It's all printed because it's, it's, it's very little, yeah. not very much difference in black and white. You and know? you add to that the computer scanning separations and you... Right, you've got a system that's very inexpensive and now, you know, with computerized typesetting, it's a breeze. But what I'm very unhappy about, you see, you can't be famous in photography unless you have a book. Nothing else counts as much. Because that's what goes around. That's your your uh, respectability card. See, that's what history. Whether you're talking well, whoever you're talking about, Francis Frith, the old Adamson. Mm -hmm. See, Ellen Adamson weren't well known. Right until, until you know the stuff was printed in the 1890s. Is that right? Yeah, or I would even have said camera work uh, to well, make it even later. Well, that was certainly the big propaganda thing. And Steichen is a wonderful example, you know, of all the publication. Everybody knew who Steichen was. In any case, uh, I'm very sad because I had enough for five books in color that would have been really smashing. Now, even uh, Haas, who's much more com was commercially oriented, he had a couple of stories in life, you know, on the cities. He had a subject matter hook. But it wasn't until fairly recently, and again, a hook, the creation thing, that he had a book of color. Mm -hmm. See, that's that's interesting. So I'm very sad. I would very much like somebody to do a book on my color photographs, which I think are fresh to this day, at least in the light of what happened. Also, historically, they'll be very important in uh, perspective.